we will be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. We have a privilege this morning of uh, hearing from Daniel Zhang, our youth intern. He has been uh, interning with our church since last summer. It's a one-year internship that will be ending this summer at the end of July. Uh, Daniel has been uh, uh, been stretched and, and used by God in many ways over the past months, and he is in the process now of applying uh, to different seminaries as he is discerning a call into vocational ministry. And it is such a honor for us as a church to be able to walk with him through this process, to give him opportunities uh, to be able to really test his calling. And um, this morning, we're going to give him a chance to test his wings here in the pulpit. And uh, we just really want to um, uh, you know, uh, continue to encourage and to equip this young man as he is seeking the Lord's calling and will for his life when it pertains to vocational ministry. So uh, let's give a warm HCC welcome to our very own Daniel Zhang. And Daniel, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, we all need prayer before we, we preach, but, but uh, I, I just want, I want to pray for you in particular. It would be my honor to do so. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. Lord, we know that uh, it's a great um, uh, privilege for Daniel himself to be able to serve you in this capacity. And Lord, I pray that you will use your servant to bring you glory. As he preaches his first sermon here in our service, Lord, I pray that you will just give him a freedom in the pulpit, uh, a sensitivity to your spirit, uh, and that you will fill him with unction, with power to be able to proclaim mightily your truth, your word to each of us. Lord, ultimately, draw all attention away from him to your word, to your son, Jesus. May Jesus receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Happy Senior Sunday again. Uh, congratulations to all of you who have survived so far. Uh, as Pastor Jason said, I've been the youth intern here for 
almost a year, and it's okay if you don't know that or don't know exactly what I do because um, recently some of our youth aren't exactly sure what I do either, so you're in good company. Uh, just some additional background about myself. I was born in Louisiana. I grew up in Dallas and then came to Houston for college where I joined CCF and was able to do a lot of things that I never thought I would be able to do, whether it is teaching in CCF or becoming a youth intern or now preaching God's word to you guys here today. Um, I realized that it is an indeed a huge honor to preach God's word. And if you can't tell, I'm extremely nervous. So both to calm my heart again and to prepare us, uh, I'll pray for us again. Oh God, we praise you because you're a God that gives us your word. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to read it, to hear from it, and to learn from it. I ask that as broken words come out of my mouth, that they stay true to your word, that they don't alter it or change it for what I want it to say, but they say, but my words say what your word truly says. I ask that we would all be able to hear your word and apply what your word has to say to each of our lives. And we pray all this in your son's most precious name. Amen. American society judges whether a particular person is good or honorable or admirable based on a few specific criteria, based on what they do or what they say, and that criteria changes over time. Whether it's with athletes and actors or politicians and pastors, we're willing to ignore certain parts of their behavior as long as they put a front that is good or respectable or how we want them to behave. For example, for our athletes, if they perform highly or not highly in a playoff game or in a crunch time scenario, we're willing to overrate them or underrate them based on their performance. We also have different standards on depending on which team these players play for and whether we ignore some of their actions or not. For actors, it's based on what movies they perform in and if they're worth watching, if they're not known for sexually abusing others or the like. And for our pastors, we think, do they care for me or do they seem nice or approachable? Whatever profession it is or whatever group, whatever person it is, it's easy for us to generalize and look at the surface and a per person's specific few actions and say they are good and worthy of our admiration and respect, while ignoring other things and other parts of their behavior that may be more hidden. Paul critiques that view here in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and calls the Christian to go against this teaching that go against a teaching that teaches what is good is those who follow a certain few commands that aren't even in Scripture, but instead calls a Christian to focus on a much harder and nebulous concept known as godliness. So today, we'll be studying 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and examining the question, why is exercising bodily discipline not enough to be considered godly? Why is exercising bodily discipline not enough to be considered godly? Henry last week covered how the church is to lift high the truth of God. And then this passage that Henry preached was used to transition into this section 
where we see an example in the first part where false teaching is used to break down the truth of God, followed by a section where Paul applies a corrective to how to fix the scenario to to Timothy. So for a basic breakdown in verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses his false teaching, and he applies the corrective in verses 6 through 8. And the main point that I am arguing for today is that the gospel calls for training in godliness, not bodily training. The gospel calls for training in godliness, not bodily training. Since this book is written to Timothy and to other, other of those who are elders, many might think that these commands of godliness might not apply to all of us. It's only given to those who are in authority, like pastors or deacons or elders. But I believe Paul here draws a line for all Christians to either pursue godliness and be servants and deacons of him, or to be servants and deacons of false doctrine and demons. So to explore our main point, we're going to first examine what happens when we are legalistic and overvalue bodily discipline. Second, how overvaluing body discipline leads to undervaluing of godliness. And lastly, knowing, how knowing the gospel leads us to valuing godliness. There's an outline for you in the bulletin if you wish to follow along. So first, legalism leads to overvaluing body discipline. I'm going to define a few terms here so we can better understand what this is about. What is legalism? Legalism adds rules or regulations to make it easier or more simple for Christians to follow these rules. Legalists in the Christian sense often try to lower the standard that God has set by adding additional rules or caveats or exceptions so that they can say they have followed the law wholly. There are two levels of legalism that generally occur. First, there are those who believe that I need to do these things or follow these laws in order to be saved. But there's also a much more subtler form of legalism, which is I need to do these specific rules that are not in the Bible to be a good Christian, to be considered holy. Second, we're going to define bodily training or discipline. And I'm going to use the terms training and discipline interchangeably. It's just that. It's placing rules on oneself to either better oneself or to prevent sin. So in verses 1 through 5, we see that the teaching of Paul is warning against a form of legalism. This legalism emphasized bodily training and discipline and and involved enforcing rules such as forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain food. This, I believe, is a second kind of legalism that I described. These people in the church were not trying to say, hey, I need to follow these rules to become a Christian. They were instead saying, we need to keep these rules that are outside of Scripture so that we can be a good Christian. If I keep these rules, I'll be pursuing God better. And if I keep these rules, I'll place my restrictions and my rules on other people so that I can look more godly. And they have to follow these rules. This was a part of the life of the Ephesian church that Paul was writing to. They had their struggles with society's philosophies, specifically with the idea of asceticism. Asceticism is a thought of 
being able to restrain certain things from your life, whether it be marriage or certain types of food, and if they abstain from it, they'll become more holy. Whether it was influenced by Jewish law or Greek philosophies, they believed that if they restricted these things, they would become better. Now, Paul goes further to say that these legalists and these asceticists who teach these rules have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, meaning that there are even deacons and servants of demons instead of Christ, and how the Spirit of God has predicted this. Jesus in Matthew 7, 15 warns against how there will be those who are wolves in sheep's clothing, meaning that there will be people inside of our church who, will, who aren't real servants of God, but instead fake ones that have an ulterior motive. And this is what Paul is accusing these false teachers of. Even further, Paul describes that these false teachers are insincere. They lie, and their consciences are seared, meaning that they have taught this false doctrine so much that they live it out in their everyday lives. Seared meaning that they have been marked and branded like cattle, and they have been marked to be teaching this false doctrine. Or it can also mean that they're seared and they're anesthetized, and they no longer can feel that they are teaching this false doctrine at all. It's like me when I was in college, and I had problems waking up, so I would set 10 or 15 alarms in the morning to make sure that I woke up in the morning. But unfortunately, every single time the alarm rang, I just hit the snooze button, and then I would just wait for the next alarm, and so on and so on. Soon, as you can imagine, I no longer even woke up to the alarm at all. I've been anesthetized to the sound of this alarm. And likewise, I believe for these, uh, this church and these teachers, they've been teaching this false teaching for so long that they no longer realize that it is false. And I believe that even the people in the church no longer realize it was false because they've been hearing it for so long. Now, to me and to most Christians, I believe, it seems valuable to establish these rules that these teachers were saying, and it's because they may be seeming to become more holy from abstaining from things such as marriage or food. It seems that what they're doing is actually good. Maybe they're restricting marriage because people are being sexually immoral. Maybe it's because they're abstaining from food to make sure that they're honoring God with their bodies and they would live longer and not eat red meat. They're just simply setting a higher standard and a better one. What's wrong with that? I believe Paul's instructions and references provide a clear answer. Paul references the creation story and how everything that God created was good. He references Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where he says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Whether it was the food on the, on the, on the earth that he made, or whether it was marriage that God instituted, Paul is arguing that when God created a world, there's nothing unclean or evil. But only through sin, there's anything unclean. And as new people made new before God, we can partake in all that God has given to us with thanksgiving and prayer. Furthermore, Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers through the creation story that this idea of adding rules or regulations to God's commands is the same deceitful spirit that tempted Eve in the garden. When she added the additional rule when she was being tempted by saying, I cannot even touch the fruit 
on the tree, much less even eat it. And ultimately, she sinned as a result. What happens when we add these additional rules is that we're trying to eventually take the place of God. We're saying, God, you don't know what's the correct rule for me and for my church. I am going to say what the rules are. And, and I believe that is what exactly Paul is arguing against. Because this type of legalism leads to making ourselves God instead of him. There's a couple caveats before we go on to see how this is manifested today. I think first, it isn't with all things that this applies. First, there's commands in the Bible versus preferences or thoughts. Commands are to be obeyed, and we should obey them, and we should enforce them in ourselves. And second, personal conviction is okay. You can offer to other people as a personal conviction of yourself by setting these guidelines or rules, but do not try to force it onto others as a rule or to prescribe it on how to live because then you're taking the place of God. Not that there aren't wise boundaries to set or to place, but Paul is arguing that we shouldn't judge or instruct a fellow brother or sister in obeying a rule that is not in Scripture. Romans 14.3 says, Let not the one who eats despises the, despise the one who abstains, and let the one who abstains not pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In our churches today, in the past, we can see many examples of this, whether spoken or unspoken in our church. Whereas the elevation of doing spiritual work as the best work in the medieval Catholic church and those who weren't being priests or monks meant that you weren't as holy or as close to God as those who were. Or whether it's a ban on dancing or watching Disney movies in the Baptist church in the last century or even today, whether it is unspoken rules as not going to bars or not playing video games or being a vegetarian or not eating meat. All in all, there are plenty of ways that we as Christians place additional rules on ourselves and then transfer them onto others and have that expectation for them. I think this passage especially convicts people like me who just want it to be cut and dry for it to be easy for us to understand exactly what God commands us to do. I just want God to just give me a list. Just give me a list of what I have to do to be holy. But in the end, what you have to realize is that God does not give us a list. He calls us into something greater. In the end, legalism leads us to, as a church to valuing certain bodily disciplines where if we see someone doing a specific action, or not doing a specific action, we say, oh, that person is holy because he or she does or doesn't do this. Maybe in our church, it may be, oh, serving as a small group leader, or going on a mission trip, or serving on the stage. That's how you can tell if someone is holy. Maybe he or she doesn't drink alcohol. Now, I don't know what the lines are for each of us, or what exactly we consider uh, what exact bodily disciplines that we draw as lines for ourselves to consider whether someone is holy, but we do need to ask ourselves this question, whether we overvalue these bodily disciplines rather than what God's word has commanded us. So as a church, let us not let legalism to cause us to overvalue these bodily disciplines and training. 
Second, overvaluing bodily discipline leads to an undervaluing of godliness. Legalism doesn't just overvalue bodily discipline. It eventually leads us to undervalue godliness. Because if we are too focused on a few characteristics or behaviors that we expect, we ignore the greater view of godliness. We can see this in verses 6 through 8. Here, Paul is encouraging Timothy to teach all the things that Paul has commanded Timothy to teach the Ephesian believers, whether it's how the church should be organized, what dangers to look out for, and ultimately reminding Timothy that he is a servant of Christ, which is a contrast to being a servant of false teaching, and instructs Timothy how to rebuke the false teaching and what to teach and train instead. Paul tells Timothy to be trained in the words of faith and good doctrine. Words of faith meaning the gospel message, and good doctrine meaning what is true and right about God and his characteristics. And this means rejecting the silly myths, whether they are legalism or bodily disciplines or just things that don't matter to the doctrine of God or the gospel message. Commentators note that apparently the false teaching was so inexact and fuzzy and random that Paul just simply dismisses it because it's not even worth addressing. And now we come to the really juicy part of this passage where there is a call for us to be trained in godliness. As Paul says, train yourself in godliness. I spend a lot of time trying to think about these two words in conjunction and by themselves, and it's hard to know exactly what they tell us to do. Train... First, we'll take each word separately, and then we'll put them together. Training. It's the word that is being used is implying this idea of physical exercise. So Paul is drawing comparison between godly training and physical exercise. Second, the idea of godliness is very tricky. What does godliness mean? In the end, I got to this definition, becoming more like God, specifically his character. Godliness is becoming more like God, specifically in his character. His character, whether it be holiness, his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace, him being a missional God. We are to become more godly in our character. The root of the word godliness refers to this awe and reverence of God. To grow in godliness means becoming a person whose worship and everyday life represents the awe and the majesty and the reverence that you have before God and that you actively obey what his word has to say. So what does this training in godliness look like? Some examples may include character modeling, training to be more like God in our character, prayer, God-centered conversations, uncomfortable situations of other people, Christians or not, studying God's word and faithful doctrine, repenting, discipleship. Now, I'm not going to go into all the ways to train yourself or prescribe a plan for you because that's what Paul specifically warns against in the previous section. But some points of emphasis I do see in the training of godliness, I think there are three or four, however many. We'll see how many I get through. Uh, First, There's effort and pain in training in godliness. It isn't passive or normal, just like physical exercise is hard. 
You have to exert yourself. You have to push yourself into situations where you're not comfortable. Second, godly training is balanced. That means you do multiple types of training in godliness and don't just focus on one. It may not seem bad if we do the types of godliness that we like. Maybe we enjoy studying doctrine and the Bible like Pastor Jason does, and that's all we do. We study it day and night, and we love really learning this theology of God. But, or if you really like discipling and sharing the gospel, and that's all you do. It's like any training, any training needs to be comprehensive. I'm no workout person like Ensu, but, and it's always been hard for me to work out consistently. But I remember the one summer I tried to work out was the summer after my sophomore year. And the one thing I learned was that you needed to work out different parts of your body. You don't just work out your arms. You need to look balanced and not like a chicken. Or if you're one of those big guys like me and really like playing basketball and you don't do your cardio, and after a couple trips up and down the basketball court, you're winded and you collapse like me. And you're like, why did I do this? Same thing with godly training. We have to work on all aspects of it. If we ignore one part, we're not fully training ourselves to become more like God's character. Furthermore, the gymnasium in Paul's day had multiple parts and purposes. One part was obviously for physical exercise, there's always also a bath attached to each gymnasium where people would get cleaned. Also, there were intellectual pursuits that took place at these gymnasiums where people were able to converse with each other and talk about the current events of the day. So in the end, Paul is imagining this godly training as just not one aspect, but a multitude that we have to all work at together. In the end, training in godliness may be tiring and overwhelming, but it is something that is worth pursuing. In the next section, Paul here argues that the training in godliness that we do is more important than the bodily training that he describes previously. Paul makes two important points here. First, bodily training isn't without value. And second, godly training is more important than bodily training. First, I believe Paul makes a special point to say that Bodily training isn't without value. One might be tempted to say Paul is stating that establishing these different rules or boundaries aren't good at all. So what's the point of even doing it? But Paul says that it does have value in preventing sin or physical exercise has value as well. And even the restraint from certain things that God created can even be good. Second, Paul states that godly training is more important because it lasts forever. Rules that you set will be broken. Things that you do for your physical body now will fall away. But godliness lasts forever. It lasts beyond the grave and the new bodies that we receive and holds eternal value. Because as Christians, we are called to resemble the, cre- uh, the character of our creator. And that is a promise we can count on. So in the end, when we overvalue bodily training, forget that training in godliness has greater value and we lose sight of that. Lastly, knowing the gospel leads to valuing godliness. Knowing the gospel leads to valuing 
godliness. So we see what happens when we overvalue bodily training, undervaluing godliness, and now we can see how the gospel shapes it all. Verse 9 offers a promise by saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I'm of the opinion that verse 9 refers to verse 10 because of chapter 1, verse 15, where there's a similar structure. And even the context of both promises can be the same, although many other commentators suggest that it goes with verse 8. But in the end, it doesn't particularly matter because they're both helpful sayings and trustworthy because they are in God's word. So what is the statement that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance? That we pursue godliness because our hope is in God, is on God. And why should we put our hope in God? Because he is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The verse that reminds us again that we have to toil and strive for godliness, further emphasizing that this is something we have to work for. So what is this gospel message that is said here? Paul explains it in three different parts. First, he explains that there is a living God. That means we have hope that our God is living. He is and was and always will be at work in our world. God is a living God. Second, he says that he's a savior of all people. That means God came down as Jesus to save us from our sin, which we deserved God's punishment for. And he died for our sins. And he didn't stay dead. But since he is living, he rose again. And when it says of all people, it means that he didn't just come to save one nation. He came to save or one group of people, but he came to save all types of peoples, and nations. Third, there's a hope, especially of those who believe. And whoever, what this means is that whoever believes this truth and puts their hope in it by making Jesus their Lord will be saved from the eternal separation from God. They have this hope that they're able to grab onto. All in all, with the hope of the gospel, we're able to pursue godliness wholly. We are able to train ourselves in this way because we know who this God is. Without the gospel, we wouldn't have knowledge of God. We couldn't strive to become more godly or become better if we don't know who this is. In the end, if we don't know God or the gospel message, everything we would be doing is bodily training. It is exactly what Paul is instructing us against. Friends, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, your hope, and your Lord, there's no point in training in godliness. There's no point. Unfortunately, you'll just be one of those false teachers that Paul describes, and we'll just be making arbitrary rules and making ourselves God instead of him. And for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember how and why we toil and strive for godliness especially for our seniors who are graduating or maybe moving on. It's easy when in a time of transition to stop striving, stop striving for godliness and put that to the side for a bit. But I must urge you to continue in your striving for godliness and remember that it is because of what Christ has done for us. In conclusion, I know I haven't provided many specifics of what godliness the godliness looks like. So I encourage you to read this book here, 
and examine what exactly godliness is and ask God in prayer to reveal it to you so that we may be a church that is known for our godliness because of what the gospel has done for us. Remember our main point today is the gospel calls for training in godliness, not bodily training. I'll just close with a simple sports story. Uh, If you know me at all, I'm a huge Dallas sports fan. Uh, One moment I distinctly remember was the summer after my 10th grade year and the Dallas Mavericks were in the NBA playoffs. After experiencing year after year of disappointment, whether it's losing to the eighth seed in the playoffs or being up three to one, uh, two to, two to, uh, three to one in the playoffs, whatever it was, or I was just ready to give up. I wasn't hopeful. There were the two times defending champion Lakers. There's the upstart team from OKC. There's a recently formed super team in Miami of LeBron, Wade, and Bosch. So what's the point of even trying? All Dallas had was this German guy named Dirk, and he's been in a league for 13 years and hasn't won a championship. What's the point of even trying? If I were a part of the team, I would have given it up, called it quits, just used the time to focus on other things, whether it be commercials, fancy cars, great vacations, not risking my life on the floor, basketball floor. Who cares about the championship? Likewise for us Christians, we may often think that it may not be worth it to train in godliness. Might as well focus our energies elsewhere. Fortunately, that team was not as fatalistic as me and overcame all the teams and won the championship resoundingly, proving all the analysts wrong and that we could take home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and prove that the training wasn't for naught. Fortunately for us, Unlike NBA players or Dirk Nowitzki, we don't have to be unsure if we'll get the championship. God has already won it for us. He guarantees it to us as we train in godliness. May we as Christians train for godliness as our goal. The time is now. Let's pray. Tell me, Father, we praise you because you our God that is holy and is worthy of being praised. And we just ask that, that during this time as we come before your table, we're reminded of what your gospel has done for us, that it calls us out of this darkness and leads us back to you. And we just ask that you would remind us that you have called us not only just away from sin, but to become who we are created to be, to become, to train in godliness. I just ask that you would remind us of that throughout this week, that we don't rely on ourselves or on bodily training to do the trick, but fully rely on you as you work in our hearts and we can become, so that we can become more godly. And pray all this in your son's most precious name. Amen.